Well, you already know what our text is. So if you'll turn to Psalm 134, while I get set up here. In his book, Beginning at Moses, A Guide to Finding Christ in the Old Testament, Michael Barrett, one of my seminary teachers here in seminary years ago, wrote this about the Psalms. Although the Psalms deal with issues of personal experience and testimony, predominantly they set forth essential objective truths of doctrine and the gospel. It is not surprising that the Psalms demand attention to the Messiah. The testimony of Scripture is clear and consistent that man cannot approach God in worship, prayer, or indeed in any capacity apart from the one and only mediator. What the tabernacle and temple taught in type, the Psalms teach in verse and song. Psalms, the book of song and worship, is a good place to find Christ. It is paramount, he said, to stay on Christ alert as you read the Psalms. Psalm 134, if you'll look at the title that you have in your text, it's identified as a song of degrees, or in some translations you may be looking at a song of ascents, as in ascending. Psalm 134 is the last in a consecutive series of 15 Psalms from 120 to 134 called Songs of Ascents, or the Pilgrim Psalms. These are Psalms apparently written for the pilgrims going up to Jerusalem to the temple, hence Songs of Ascents, to celebrate the various Old Testament feasts of Israel that required the appearance of all Jewish males uh, in Jerusalem for these feasts. And Psalm 134 is not only the last of these 15 consecutive songs, it's also the shortest about 40 words in English, depending on, again, what translation you're looking at. It's only 25 words in Hebrew. So what is going on in this psalm? Well, let's start with some initial observations. It is an antiphonal psalm, which is a psalm, an anthem, a song that is spoken or sung responsively, alternating between two persons or two groups. That's the way it's constructed. And if you are reading in a modern version, those two voices are not apparent. For example, if you're looking at the ESV, here's what the text says. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Now, the words all and servants pretty much tip you off that the you here is plural, and it is in the text. Verse 2, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Is that your singular or plural? Well, there's no indication of a change of audience, so you would probably guess, well, it must be plural, and you'd be right. Verse 3, may the Lord bless you from Zion who made heaven and earth. Again, no change of audience, no change of speaker is indicated in the text itself, so you'd probably guess, well, the you here is probably still plural. You'd be wrong. It's not. And in a case like this, actually the King James Version gives you a little bit of an interpretational advantage. Read in the King James, it says, Behold, bless ye the Lord, all ye servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord, 
lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. And we don't say ye, but ye and you and your in the King James Version always, always translates a plural pronoun in the original Greek or Hebrew. But notice the reply in verse 3, the Lord who made heaven and earth bless thee out of Zion. Thee, thou, and thy in the King James and Elizabethan English always signifies a singular pronoun in the original Greek or Hebrew. So you can see the antiphonal conversation here between verses 1 to 2, an individual addressing a group, and then verse 3, the group replies back to that individual. It's like what you have in the book of Ruth. Ruth blesses his reapers, says to his reapers, the Lord be with you, that's plural. The reapers reply, and the Lord bless thee, that's singular, because there's only one of Boaz. So who are, in Psalm 134, who are the two speakers? Who are the two audiences? Well, verses 1 and 2 talk about the servants of the Lord, and they stand by night in the house of the Lord. Stand here doesn't refer to people who are just hanging around. That word is used throughout the Old Testament to denote priestly service in the temple. So the speaker in verses 1 and 2 is addressing the priests ministering in the temple. Verse 3 when it says, the Lord bless thee out of Zion, that is the priest's reply to the individual worshiper who had addressed them. So you've got this antiphonal form. Question, what about this phrase, who stand by night in the house of the Lord? What would the priest be doing there at night? Well, we don't have time to turn to these passages, but I'll give them to you. Deuteronomy 10.8 summarizes the duties of the Levites. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to stand before the Lord to minister and to bless in his name. Leviticus 6 describes part of the around-the-clock responsibilities of these priests. Command Aaron and his sons, saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. It is the burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar all night until the morning. And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. First Chronicles 9.33 says that the chief of the fathers of the Levites were employed in their, in their work day and night. And these passages just describe the service of the tabernacle. Once Solomon built the temple, it only got more complex and more time-consuming. In anticipation of the temple, David divided up the responsibilities of the various Levitical families. 24,000 were assigned to the general work and maintenance of the temple, 4,000 musicians, 4,000 gatekeepers, 6,000 judges, and all the priests, a specific subset, the descendants of Aaron, were divided into 24 crews or courses that rotated on a monthly basis. Second Chronicles 4, Solomon's temple didn't just have one table of showbread, it had 10. So fresh bread had to be baked, 12 loaves per table, do some quick mental math, every single day. Solomon's temple didn't have one menorah, it had 10 menorah, menorahs. And those had to be constantly trimmed and filled with oil and kept burning 24-7. The lights literally never went out in the temple. 
A temple guard was maintained to protect the treasures in the temple. Not just the temple furniture, but that's where the nation kept the king's treasures. So what's the significance of all these details? It just highlights the incredibly complex, unceasing busyness of the temple ministry. It was never done. It was never over. It was never finished. It was repeated not just every day, but literally around the clock, every day of every week of every month of every year, as unceasingly as the sins for which it was atoning in order to maintain the reconciliation and the relationship between a holy God and his sinful people. So what is the setting of Psalm 134? What's going on here? Well, the immediate setting suggests a worshiper retiring from the temple at night, and as he departs, voicing an encouraging admonition to the priests who are remaining behind. In the wider context, as the concluding psalm of these pilgrim psalms, 120 to 134, the image of evening pictures these pilgrim worshipers leaving the Jerusalem temple for the last time, perhaps, perhaps departing from the city in the pre-dawn darkness to go back to their homes after the feast, and the priests address them in response. That's the setting. So let's look a little bit more closely at the text itself. Look at verses 1 and 2. Behold, bless ye the Lord, all ye servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Those first two verses that form a unit of exhortation, encouragement from the worshiper to the priests begins and ends with bless the Lord. When God is the object of that word, bless, It means to acknowledge gratefully all that he is, all that he does. In other words, the request of the worshiper to the priests is exclusively God-centered. Worship begins not with, hey, bless me, or ask God to bless me, but with bless the Lord. Because true worship is all about God, not about me. That's the exhortation, the encouragement of the departing worshiper to the priest remaining behind in the temple all night because the work of the temple was never done. Now verse 3, the priests reply with a prayer for God's blessing in return on that worshiper. The Lord who made heaven and earth bless thee out of Zion. And again, to bless God is to acknowledge gratefully what he is, what he does, But to bless man, to bless you and me, God must make of us what we are not and give to us what we do not have. As the intermediary between God and man, the priest is the channel through which God conveys his blessing to sinful people. And as maker of heaven and earth, God possesses all the resources with which to bless. And that blessing follows his people wherever they go, wherever they live. These are pilgrims, remember, leaving at the end of the feast and going back to their scattered homes all over Israel because he is God everywhere. So why not the Lord bless you out of heaven? Why does the blessing of Yahweh come from Zion? out of Zion. What is Zion? 
That name has been applied historically to different spots in and around Jerusalem. Sometimes it's just a synonym for the city itself, for Jerusalem. But it also came to be applied specifically to the Temple Mount. Jerusalem or Zion is the one place on earth that God chose to set apart in a unique way with his name and his presence. It is the place from which all of God's blessings flow because that's where the temple is. You say, what difference does that make? The temple and what happened there unceasingly between sinful Israel and the holy God who made heaven and earth, there is no relationship between God and Israel apart from what happens in that temple apart from the unceasing sacrifices and atonements made in that temple. So what happened there at the temple on Mount Zion was central, it was crucial, it was foundational, it was fundamental to Israel's existence and survival and blessing from God. This place called Zion, this temple with its ongoing, unending sacrifices day after day and night after night was the necessary ground and basis of the holy God's relationship with his sinful people. Zion and what happened there was the source of their existence, the source of their survival. So, the question is, what is this 3,000-year-old Hebrew psalm in its Old Testament setting with Israel's temple and Levitical priests and Jewish worshipers, what does it have to do with us? Well, if you are a Christian, it has everything to do with you. There is no relationship. There is no basis of relationship between you and the holy God who made heaven and earth apart from what happened on Zion. Everything that happened for Israel In the temple on Mount Zion merely foreshadowed what would later happen for humanity on what we call Mount Calvary, but that's actually just an arm of the same elevation, the same ridge on which the temple was built, an arm that extended outside the wall of the city. The ongoing, unending efficacy of the self-sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah, who was both the Lamb and the High Priest, is the necessary ground, is the only basis for the Holy God's relationship with humanity, with us, with you. It was the place of Christ's final and forever fulfillment of all of those animal sacrifices that the writer of Hebrews explains could never take away sin. It is the sacrifice of Christ there that is the ground, the only ground of all of God's blessing on his people. So here's the pulse of the beating theological heart in verses 1 to 2. My whole relationship to God is grounded in the final sacrifice of the Lamb of God that was anticipated by all those constant, continual sacrifices that were temporarily necessary but could never actually take away a single sin. And the the, the pulse of the beating theological heart in verse 3 is God's whole relationship to me 
and the sole basis on which He can bless me with His presence, with His promises, with everything that I could need or desire comes out of Zion. It is grounded in that final sacrifice that takes away all my sins and reconciles me forever to Himself. Psalm 134 is a graphic reminder that when the worshipers went home, the priests did not. Because the labor and the ministry of the priests on behalf of those people who were going home was not done. It was never, ever done. It was as perpetual and as unending and around the clock as the sins of God's people. There was always more to be done, more sin to be atoned, more sacrifices to be offered over and over and over again. And that's why Hebrews 10.11 described, even in the day when that letter was written, described the priests always, quote, standing daily, and we could add and nightly, standing daily in the temple, ministering in the temple. And that's why Hebrews 1 opens with the magnificent announcement that when Christ had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because it was finished. It was done. It was fulfilled. Your reconciliation to God was accomplished once and for all. And if you are in Christ, God blesses you only from Zion and only because of Zion. The ground of your access to God is not your faithfulness. It is Christ's faithfulness. It is Christ's finished work. That never changes. It's not that your faithfulness is unimportant, but that's not the ground on which he accepts you. In Psalm 134, the pilgrim worshipers could go home in peace and security and with the blessing of God pronounced on them by the priests precisely because the priestly work of sacrifice and intercession continued in their absence and on their behalf. And you and I, as pilgrim worshipers, Peter calls us pilgrims. If you're not a pilgrim, you're not a Christian. You and I as pilgrim worshipers can live in peace and security and with the blessing of God precisely because the priestly work of Christ is done and continues to keep you reconciled to God in right relationship with access to God. This is not an artificial reading of the New Testament back into the Old Testament. It is turning on the lights of the New Testament to show us what's really going on in the Old Testament. It is the Psalms themselves that spell out the priestly work of Christ. Read Psalm 110. The fact is the Old Testament sacrificial system is meaningless. It's pointless. It's impotent apart from Christ's fulfillment of all of that. All of it anticipates and expects and is fulfilled in and by Christ. That Christological fulfillment that I'm suggesting for this psalm is the God-intended application. I began with a quote from Michael Barrett. Let me go back to just a portion of that. The testimony of Scripture is clear and consistent. 
that man cannot approach God in worship, prayer, or in any capacity apart from the one and only mediator. In other words, nobody can have the blessing of God apart from Zion and what God, what Christ accomplished there. If you want the blessing of God, the only maker of heaven and earth, you will have to look to Zion. God blesses only from Zion on the basis of the priestly self-sacrifice of his son there. And if your hope and trust is in that Lamb of God, then God's unchanging posture towards you is to bless you from Zion, out of Zion, on the basis of what Christ did for you there. Because his priestly self-sacrifice for you there is unending. Its, its, its effects are day and night. And because your high priest always lives to make intercession for you. Father, thank you for this very, very small portion of your word. Thank you that it is so full of Christ. Thank you for the New Testament that explains to us the significance of even passages such as this. Lord, may they magnify in our eyes your grace, your goodness, and the work of Christ on our behalf. May we glory in that, Lord. May that be our confidence always that we have access to you through Zion, because of Zion, because of the work of Christ there for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.